I want to thank Erica the very first thing uh, because she created this forum for fierce female storytelling. And I am fully convinced that it's women and those who identify as women who are going to save us. And we need to support each other and our stories. So it's really important to be here and to support each other. So I had a couple of things that I wanted to talk about, how bodies carry our stories. And then there was the summit the other day. And it's interesting that Irena talked about communism because it made me think of 36 hours that I spent in Warsaw back in 1982, and I, I see Irena's mother nodding. And my first husband was a dentist, and he was in an implant study group. And one of the dentists in that group had made it out of Poland um, in a barrel on a train, and it took many days for her to get out. And eventually she got her husband and son out of there as well. There was a wall around the Soviet Union. And it's scary. We flew in, and there was armed guards around the airplane. When we checked into the hotel, they confiscated our passports. Um, when we went to the hospital to see the patient of the dentist, the patient stood at attention at their bedside when the doctor came in the room. And then he chickened out and didn't want to have a dental implant done. And I think it's largely because we were Americans, and it was scary. And the dentist also asked us to smuggle out a letter for him to mail because the government went through every piece of mail and read it. And then when we left, we got on a bus and went back to the airplane, and uh, we were surrounded by armed guards. And it was really scary, and I felt like the whole time I was there, I hadn't been breathing until I got out of Soviet airspace. That's the kind of tensions that we hold in our bodies when shit like that happens, and we're in a shitty time. And I don't know about you all, but I've got a lot of tension in my body. So walls. Walls don't just keep people out. They keep people in. My first wall was my dad's legs. I was extremely shy, and when I was a little girl, I'd hide behind his legs. And I think really shyness is uh, an incredible uh, deep criticism of self that I, I just don't match up. You know, I, I'm not important. Then eventually I switched to drinking and drugs. But whatever it is, walls are always about fear. Stereotyping builds walls. Stereotyping about ageism, color, gender, and inside walls are about abandonment, losing love, and feeling safe. And I kept myself safe in a lot of different ways. So I hid my voice behind a wall. And it's taken me years to try to get my voice again. And now it's cracking up on me. It's an obsolescence thing. But one of the first times I remembered not having a voice that I still grieve to this day, is um, when I was married to my first husband, and he had five children from his first marriage, and I got pregnant. 
And he said, make that appointment for the abortion after you get done doing the books for the office. Because I worked with him in the office. So my body, my choice, Elena said. Well, it was my body, his choice. Because, yes, I had a choice, and I chose to do that, but I didn't really, because I couldn't speak up for myself. So I traded safety, and I never got pregnant again. I never had children. So when we don't have our voices, what happens is that other people wind up telling us what our stories are. And for me, it was usually the men in my life. And our beliefs become a story. Our beliefs are what everybody around us tells us. A belief is something that we keep telling ourselves, that we keep repeating over and over. And we get those beliefs from family and friends and partners and experiences and DNA. Trauma is passed down to generations So eventually I got sober, and I met the love of my life. And we got married, and I wasn't drinking, wasn't doing drugs, but I was still addicted to those beliefs, that I wasn't enough on my own, that I needed a man. I was broken, I needed to be fixed, and a man was the only thing that could fix me. So after 10, 15 years of marriage... I was dissatisfied. I decided my husband wasn't doing his job. It wasn't keeping me happy. I blamed him. And I thought the only thing that could fix me was finding another man. And I did. And I felt sexy and I felt alive. And it was because of a man. It wasn't because of anything inside of me. I needed to be validated by a man. And when I was with this man... uh, I left my husband, and I was with him, with this man. And he lived about three hours away. And one weekend, I went to see him in his apartment. And the doorbell rang really early in the morning. And he grabbed his phone, he ran into the bathroom and locked the door. But first he said, do not answer that door. And I'm pretty curious, you know. I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so it was really weird to stand. I I made it out to the front door, and I knew somebody was on the other side of it. I didn't know who, but I had to see who. And I looked through the peephole, and there was an eye, and it was like, oh, shit. And I tried to be really quiet. But when the eye stepped back, it was a woman. And she was banging on the door and calling his name. And then I heard him, do not answer that door. And you know what? I didn't. And he kept telling me, that's the cat lady I told you about. She's crazy. She thinks I have her cat. And I believed him. He told me that story over and over. She's the cat lady. She's crazy. And then he moved a couple more times, and there was a point where he wasn't even telling me where he lived. And I believed everything he said. And that's gaslighting. And when you live behind a wall, sometimes a gaslight is the only light you have. And gaslighting, I firmly believe, is how women carry the stories of patriarchy. Because we're too afraid to have our own stories. 
So there I was. I spent 95% of my time alone, and I thought, well, what am I going to do? I can't keep depending on my husband. We weren't divorced yet to still support me. I didn't know what was going to happen, and I really, you know, I was starting to think about myself in this time alone, living by myself. And I thought, I need to go back to school. I need to do something. I, need, I want to be able to take care of myself. So I thought, okay, for 18 years, I worked in dentistry with my first husband. I'll go back to school and become a hygienist. So at age 59, I started the prereqs for hygiene school. And I thought, I'm going to be a hygienist. And then I thought, why do I want to suck more spit? Why do I want to get a backache by bending over somebody? And then I remembered that when I was nine years old, I spent almost a month in the hospital, and I wanted to be a nurse. And the prereqs were the same for hygiene and for nursing. And I thought, okay, I'll apply to hygiene school and I'll apply to nursing school, and whichever one accepts me first, that's what I'll do. And I was accepted into hygiene school. So I became a nurse. <laughs> and that's where I really learned the nitty-gritty about bodies. But one of the most important things that I learned in nursing school was critical thinking. And I think a lot of us don't have that right now. And I think that's a class that we could give everybody, is to learn how to think critically given data. So as Erica said, at age 64, I became an RN. At 60, thank you. At, <laughs> at 65, I got my bachelor's degree in nursing. And then last year, like Erica said, I got my master's degree for my other passion, writing. And so I have an MFA. Thank you. So when I was in nursing school, I just kind of went quarter to quarter, class by class, because there's an attrition rate of about 15 to 20%. And this is a woman who kept telling herself that she couldn't, couldn't make it. You know, I wasn't worth anything. I wasn't smart enough. But I had a GPA that ranged from 3.7 to 3.8, and I was making it. And the longer I stayed and the more I made it, the more I felt like I was getting my voice, and I was becoming important to myself. But I do remember that when I had final exams and stuff, I could not study more than two days in advance because there was no way I was going to remember that shit. <laughs> but because I began to feel better about myself, I ended the narcissistic relationship. And there is narcissistic abuse and I think we're all suffering from it. It is a thing. While I was getting my BSN, I was working in memory care, because I think I relate more to people in dementia than I do ordinarily to other people. They kind of live in an alter alternate universe, and I was always able to meet them right there. And I was at work one day, and one of my residents was leaning back on her chair, and she fell over. And I know she landed on her head. 
and I ran over to see if she was okay, and I tripped in my damn dance goes. And it wasn't the first time I tripped in my damn dance goes either. And I put my hand out to break my fall, and I broke my wrist. And as I was laying on the floor waiting for one of the other nurses to get a splint for me so I could take myself to the hospital, I pulled out my phone because my husband, during all that time, six years, we never divorced. We couldn't come to an agreement. I always loved him. I always will. And uh, he had ended a relationship. I ended a relationship and he was calling me and saying, you know, why don't, why don't we see if we can work this out? So he was going to come up the next day, and we were going to take a couple days and go to the coast. And I sat there with the phone, and I called him, and I said, John, I just fell and broke my wrist. Can you come up tonight instead of tomorrow? It makes me cry. He said, I'll be there in three hours. It's a four-hour trip. He drives like a maniac. <laughs> but by the time I went to the ER and got home, he was there. And it's a good thing, because I could never open that bottle of pain pills without somebody. <laughs> so that was the best part of that whole time. And I found that love isn't about sex or being fixed or immediate gratification. It's about trust, and intimacy depends on trust. And trust means tearing down walls and changing your story. My mom was born without a joint in her right thumb, and she always said, I've got a bum thumb. I can't do anything. I'd like to sew. I'd like to do art. I'd like to make crafts, but I can't. I've got a bum thumb. So instead, she'd lay around and watch TV and be depressed. And that's a shame that she didn't know that she could get beyond that. But that's the story that she told herself. Three months ago, I fell off my bicycle. And I knew it was going to fall. I lost control of my bicycle. And I was headed to go over the handlebars. And I thought, oh, dear goddess, I don't want to break my ribs. So I propelled my body to the right. And then I thought, oh, dear goddess, I broke my right wrist four years ago. I don't want to land on that. And then I thought, oh, dear goddess, I'm now wearing a helmet. And then I ran out of time. (laughs) I landed on my left wrist and shattered it. (laughs) Damn it. And... um, The doctor tells me that I'm not going to be able to regain full motion, full range of motion, or full function, and it's probably going to hurt for a long time, and I'm beginning to believe him. And it's hard because I want my body to be perfect. I want my wrist to be perfect. And then I learned that perfection is tyranny and sadism that we do on ourselves. I work and study with Lydia Yukonovich, and she's awesome. She's an author, and she started corporeal writing, which means writing from the body. 
and they have a shirt that says, I'm not the story you made of me. We're also not always the story that we make of ourselves. You know, I have, I met an author a couple of years ago who was born with no arms. And she drives a car and she flies an airplane. I have a dear friend that I worked with in Colorado who uh, lost her husband to multiple sclerosis and thought she'd never be happy again. She was devastated. And she met a man and was just wonderfully happy. And then months later, she was on a four-wheeler with him, and she flew off the back and fell and became paralyzed from the waist down. And when I broke my wrist and posted it on Facebook, she was you know, trying to soothe me and say how bad she felt that I broke my wrist. And, but she said, I'm beginning to feel good about the rest of my life. And my mom couldn't get over the thumb. And I thought, you know, I could sit here and I could say, my wrist hurts, I can't write. Maybe I'll never be a nurse again. Or I can't ever get up and speak because I've got a crackly voice. Because that's the story that I could tell myself. But I don't want to do that. So I found out that we can change our stories without changing the facts without changing the facts of our bodies. We don't have to focus on our limitations. We can look at our story and say, what if that story is wrong? And celebrate our bodies, our stories. No more bum thumbs. Thank you.